Chapter 9, Part 2 Fiction Can Be Fun Cabin fever worked effectively for blame assignment on unruly actions. If there was an act that thrust a bit too far or over the top, cabin fever became such an endearing blame recipient. A vacation in personal accountability in many regards. My writing content would take full advantage of vacation. As a bold reflection of this novel cabin fever, this story evinces some mild but temporary madness. A short story about absolutely nothing and never was completed, and hopefully never will be. The fable has no name or title. In fact, this was more of a creative writing exercise than a story, an exercise that tests out different narrators with different narrative styles. A flow that is fairly bonkers, even by my standards, and can be hard to follow. But bits of the segments are fun and silly. Here is a field guide to help you navigate the ill literary absurdity. Putting yourself through the torture of reading this comes with a recommendation that you flag this page to help follow along. Synopsis. Jack Quindlestub, along with a group of unscrupulous friends, was hoping to have a relaxing night of eating pizza and watching television. But Jack has made many enemies over the course of his life. Perhaps the worst enemy of all is himself and the narrator. Jack finds himself strung up in the crossfire of his own story, while his unique ability to communicate with the story's narrator, Quentin Gormack, could be his final undoing. Quentin is not the only enemy or narrator that is after Jack. Will his flagrant past, teamed with its narrative, be enough to compel him into changing his ways? Story Field Manual The Plot There is none. Oddly named guys are hanging out getting ready to order pizza while a mix of narrators perform at the highest level to portray the activities. Toto Durkee a very unlucky character and somewhat negligible. Wyatt Urkel, a supporting character who is a prominent bully. He works as a library bounty hunter. Ken Doth, another supporting character who is incredibly unsure of himself. He is an aspiring astronomer. Or is he? David Michael Spalufioni, a supporting character who has been working on his pathetic stand-up bits for years and never got around to open mic night. He gets feisty when people don't laugh at his jokes. Jack Quindlestub A key character that can actually hear and interact with the narrators. A hint of Stranger Than Fiction, an absolutely underrated movie by the way, but in my defense, this was written before that movie came out. His love life will come into play. He was also the main character in two short stories I wrote in high school. Quentin Gormuck Senior narrator of the story. Quentin's current girlfriend dated Jack Quindlestub and Jack owed her money when they broke up, of which Jack still has not paid back. This has caused a lot of hostility between Quentin and his girlfriend, causing her to move out only recently. Spud Fligger understudy to Quentin Gormack, who specializes in characterial studies and is near to complete his doctorates. Mr. Slugversh, world-renowned authority in horror and suspense narration. Author, 
Executive Vice President of Story Content and Narration Operations. Suzanne Nubby. Jack Quindlestubbs, ex-girlfriend. Stacy Jane. Jack Quindlestubbs, ex-girlfriend and Quentin Gormach's current girlfriend. Gregor Morksley. Executive Editor. Disgruntled ex-newspaper editor. So, if this field guide doesn't intrigue you in the slightest bit, it is probably in your best interest to circumvent the story itself and continue into the next section. Untitled and Unfinished Story About Dudes Who Order Pizza by Bradley Oliger Section 1 Toto sat down next to Wyatt Urkel, a fellow messed-up character himself, except Wyatt was more of a bully. He had a clean ponytail that carried better than his mangy beard. So, Toto, Toto, is that your real name? asked Wyatt. You bet, Toto returned. Man, that's a stupid name. I bet you weren't very popular in high school, huh? Probably never kissed a girl, have you? Toto shook his head no. I can't blame myself that I never kissed a girl. Of course he can't. Not with a name Toto. In the other room, Ken Doth was diligently ordering a pizza for the bunch. He struggles with speaking and finally dialed in the number to Swamp's Pizza Place when nobody was paying attention. He was troubled. Had he dialed the wrong number? Hello? Came a voice on the other side of the phone. Most likely, Ken almost wet his pants for sure. There was no way he could know this was the pizza place unless he asked. If he asked and it was not Swamp's, then they would surely laugh, most likely. He wavered, biting his nails. He finally spoke. Is... This Swamp's Pizza Place? That's what it says on our pizza boxes. Ken Doth was so relieved. This was the right number. Yet, was the guy mocking him? And what would he order? What if somebody was unhappy with the toppings? Ken could not speak. Hello? Hello? said the line. David Michael Spalufioni ran to Ken Doth's rescue. He knew that Ken was incompetent, and especially incompetent on the phone. He picked it up. Hello, I'm David Michael Spalufioni, speaking for Ken Doth. Who the hell is this? Swamps. David Michael started grinning. Good one. Here's one for you, pal. How's about I order your pizza delivery, and when you show up, I'll ask, Hey, is this the pizza I ordered, or is that your pathetic pimply face? Do you think that's funny, Swamp? Asked David Michael Spalufioni. I'm sorry. No laughter on our menu. What's your order? David Michael Spalufioni grew livid. You don't think that's funny? You better laugh now. Here's another one. My eyesight's so poor that I donated an old pair of glasses to the space program. You might have heard it. It's called the Hubble Telescope. <laughs> Did you like that one? There was a pain-filled sigh. Um, will this be delivery, sir? You son of a bitch. Laugh, damn you, laugh, or your wife will find you lying in bed next to her one morning with a knife in her chest and a note taped to your forehead saying, Thanks for the motive written in blood. You hear me? You will laugh. 
Laugh, or I will get your firstborn child to mock you about how you're still a virgin. I'll tell everybody in this town. It's like picking your nose after your index finger was stamped for fingerprints at the police station. People are gonna know what you've done, you punk. We'll have it ready in around thirty minutes. The line ended. Immediately, David Michael Spalufioni returned to his normal happiness, as if nothing had ever taken place. He gestured to Ken Doth, who was still worried that people would think he had failed for not ordering the pizza. That guy didn't think I was funny. Oh well. David walked back to the living room. He squatted next to Jack Quindlestub. Jack is the only person who can hear me, the narrator, and butts in way too much. Just wait and see. Jack, as you may know, is quite a character himself indeed. Let's talk instead about the narrator, Quentin Gormock. No, we need not do that. Yes, yes we do, announced he. Hey, Jack, who are you talking to? Asked Wyatt, unknowingly coming to my rescue. I'm talking to the narrator, Quentin Gormock, answered he. You guys should be aware that we're actually in a story told by this fellow, Quentin. David Michael Spalufioni bared his butt to the sky. Hey, Mr. Gornong, kiss the moon, you baboon. He screeched and turned to his peers. You guys think that was funny? Me showing my hiney to an invisible nobody? Asked David Michael Spalufioni. No one laughed. You all are gonna rot in hell. If all of you would have twins, they'd all be ugly, you hear me? He steadied his voice. Uh, I'm sorry. Perhaps it wasn't funny. Damn right it wasn't funny, you twit, said Wyatt. David Michael Spalufioni's face grew grim. What did you say? I called you a nitwit. I don't care about that. What was the other thing you said? Wyatt stopped for a second. I said, damn right too? Damn right what? Damn right you aren't funny. You are not funny. You got that stub nuts? Toto started chuckling. Ken, who had recently walked back into the living room, started to mither also, but quickly ceased, realizing that he was not really sure if he thought what Wyatt said was really funny and truly worthy of laughter. David Michael Spalufioni glared at Toto with distrust. Did you think he was funny, or was that a delayed laugh from what I said? His look portended a certain outrage if Toto answered incorrectly. Toto stood still like an object that isn't moving. He played out the situation internally. If he lied, then Wyatt would kick his butt if he told the truth and said that he thought Wyatt's word stubnuts was funny, then David Michael Spalufioni would rip him to shreds. I didn't laugh. It wasn't me, he deftly responded. Wyatt and David Michael Spalufioni both leaned in on him. Then who did it? They pleaded in unison. Toto turned to Ken and rocked his head several times as if to point. Ken Doeth said it, and I can't blame myself that he said it. I, I did not, Ken blurted. He realized that quite possibly he did laugh at it out loud. Perhaps he was not aware of it. A subconscious laugh channeled perhaps through his body language or, or some untapped telekinetic tittering. David Michael Spalufioni, Wyatt, Toto, and the idiot all got off the couch and motioned in on Ken Doth. I'm not an idiot, I'm Jack, 
declared he. No one paid attention to him, and rightly so. He's a stupid, hallucinating joke of a person. Quentin, exclaimed he, stop that nonsense. Damn it, Jack, shouted Wyatt. This is serious business. Quit talking to your imaginary friend, Quincy. They finally cornered Ken. Twas not I, or mayhaps it was. Oh. Again, he was lost for speech in his fumbling intent for trying to sound smart and poetic. He did not really comprehend the ideas in his mind. He froze up with fear. Perhaps he wanted the blame, but probably he did not. He did not understand. He could not know. He had no coin to flip. He was so unsure of himself. Wyatt looked back at Ken with a brutish glare. Everyone knew it was brutish, except Ken. Although Ken was intimidated, most likely, he could not decide if Wyatt's stare was daunting to him. But at least he's not Jack Quindlestub. He's smelly and... Come on, said he and apologized. Sorry, guys. Ken made like he was going to speak. He was so worried about whether he should speak now. What if Wyatt was about to say something and it would be rude too? Speak, damn it! Explain yourself! Screamed Wyatt. Am I funny? Cried David Michael Spalufioni. Ken swallowed a breath. I bear not. No, I desire. No, t'was... Not I who laughed and laughed of silly words. Your man of guilt is not I. What if I am wrong, he wondered. Or did he? David Michael Spalufioni, Toto, Wyatt, and Dork conferred amongst themselves and were immediate in their verdict. Very well, Ken, said Wyatt. We must test you. Do you accept the test? Ken Doth analyzed for a moment. What kind of test, he reluctantly wondered. Finally, he conceded by nodding his head sheepishly. He knew he would be savagely beaten if he did not accept it. Most likely. But it all seemed so futile. Question one. If you write a letter to someone, should that person write back? Asked Wyatt. They all gawked at him for many moments, and Ken grew very self-conscious as if he had a wart growing on his nose or a third ear never noticed before. He waited, wondering. Perhaps it was a staring contest, but there was no way to know for sure. There were four people and eight eyes to stare at. At least he was sure there were only four people, but there could have been someone who was hiding undetected. He finally fell over the edge about the whole matter. Yes. David Michael Spalufioni looked at his watch with a keen grin. You passed the first part, he said as the others looked at their watches and agreed. This really made Ken unsure of himself. Perhaps he did have a third ear. He resolved upon what to say next. What? You passed the first part, again said David Michael Spalufioni. You went nearly forty-five seconds saying nothing, and then answered correctly. Now, which is better, running or walking? Ken's throat was parched with insecure confusion. Walking! He accidentally screamed, then reassured himself that he probably did not mention that. Rather, he likely imagined it. 
no such luck. Abruptly, all four of the judges started to clap in ovation. And you passed the next test. Congratulations, said David Michael Spalufioni. Ken shook his head in disbelief and realized maybe it was not in disbelief. Or was it? This is nuts. Again, he uncontrollably loathed, this time unable to convince himself that he had imagined blatantly speaking. You're not completely through yet, said Wyatt. Everybody looked at Wyatt as if he were breaking rules as he went. Yet, he proceeded. Mr. Ken Doth, what state is as big as the moon? Ken froze up. He knew that the truth would prevail in the end. Now, with so much sureness, he knew he was guilty. He would surely accept the punishment of failing to know. Wyatt stepped in tighter, awaiting an answer. Well, Mr. Doth, what is the answer? Narrator's Note At the author's request, due to my inability to perform sufficient narratorical remarks and perception on the subject of action and drama for the forthcoming scene, I must introduce a young, growing specialist in that field. His name is Spud Fligger, soon to be Dr. Spud Fligger, Ph.D. He served as an advisor for voice inflection within written narration during the story Who Belittled My Bimbo by Samantha McStud and performed intern narratorical works on the post-apocalyptic non-fiction memoir The Intensity Cult by J. K. Elliman. He is currently attending the University of Fiction, hoping to receive his doctoral degree in narratorical studies at the end of this semester. His thesis is Characters, What Are They Really Thinking? A Chronological Survey of Characterial Studies. I give you Spud Fligger, under close supervision as an understudy. Narrator's Note Thank you. Although I have not received my doctoral degree yet, and this segment, too, is an internship, I modestly let it be known that I do have my master's degree. As previously cited, I have other practicum experience in the narration of non-romance novels. Now, I hope that my touches on drama and action, much needed upon this upcoming part, will be a significant benefit to the tension of this story. What I want to do first is bring back the paragraph from before in which Mr. Ken Doth is frozen up from sudden pressure and insecurely feels guilty and adopts the blame. I will reshuffle the scene simply in order to fit the dramatic demands of this segment. And so, I'll begin. Ken so icily had congealed up, for truth would reign in the end like a dog searching his backyard for the buried bone. Most certainly, his strength of inner self so resolutely made him surmise he was surely reprehensible of such an infraction. It had before intensely waged his mind, but... You already covered this part, claimed he, rudely. His position amongst the others was undoubtedly between David Michael Spalufioni and Toto Durkey. His face angered that I would deliver this part over again, although Mr. Gormuck has already touched on this course of action. Excuse me, Mr. Quindlestub, but if you had been paying attention, Mr. Gormuck authorized for the last scene over so that I, Spud Fligger, could inject a more emotional and action-filled segment. Narrator's Note Don't mind him, Spud. Now, try to use more flowing words and less of those big words. They really make the narrating segments get sludgy and hard to read. 
Under what authority can you narrate this segment over? cried he, still rudely. Damn it, Jack, this is serious, shouted Wyatt, his mouth agape like a fierce dog racing after a frisbee. Quit talking to your imaginary friend. I want to know this student narrator's authority, spoke he, even more rudely. Narrator's note. Shut up, Jack. Let him narrate. Go ahead and answer him, Spud. Narrator's note. Yes, sir. Under the authority of the author who has hired me as an intern, under the direct supervision of Mr. Gormuck, that is how I am narrating that segment over. Do you hear me, Mr. Quindlestub? I have accrued over 320 credit hours at higher learning institutions. Now, if you don't mind, I must narrate what I deduce to be a deeply important and dramatical scene in this story. I will now finish Mr. Doth's sentence. It had before intensely waged his mind, but now he knew he had committed such a terrible misdemeanor. Now what could the heinous perpetrator do, he wondered, despite once found sureness that seemed to have dissipated like a dog's hunger after a suspenseful meal. He could not adjudicate upon how to fight back his own remorse. His heart told him to accept accountability no more. His punishment for wrongdoing. Narrator's note. How am I doing, Mr. Gormack? Narrator's note. You're doing fine, Spud. Try to use fewer fancy terms. There's no need for them. This, as you can see, is not a complex story, and not even fancy words can make this story any better. And do not let Mr. Doth's confusion confuse you as a narrator. I struggle with it as well. Call it as you see it. Narrator's note. I don't understand what you mean by fancy terms, Mr. Gormack. Narrator's note. What I mean is for words like adjudicate, whatever that means, say decide or decide... You don't need fancy words. Other than that, you're doing fine, Spud. Also, try to omit so many dog references. Author's note. This is a live story, gentlemen. Readers are closing books at this very moment. Literary agents are leaving. Proceed. Narrator's note. Sorry, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. Gormick. Wyatt stepped in closer using intimidation the way a dog uses its bark to scare away people from its territory. The couch in the other room had a collage of fine blues and grays, and the carpet beneath their feet matched it well. Well, Mr. Doth, what state is comparable to the moon in size? The constricting pressure was insufferable. Ken Doth concluded he surely could handle no more, most likely, his instincts were like the bladder of a dog as it debouches from its yard out into the neighborhood. He could not maintain it. It is so unassailable that he could not hold it, most likely. I'm not sure. You hear me? I, I think it's Kansas, but I'm not sure. Or am I? Section 2 Narrator's Note At the author's request... My internship involving drama and action for that last segment is now complete. Now, because the next segment foretells horror and disaster, I must pass the narratorical role to Mr. Slugversh, a well-renowned specialist in interpreting the subjects of horror and suspense. Although he contains no advanced academic stature, we should not hold that against him. 
Many brilliant and accomplished professionals have done so without formal education, although the probability of such success is greatly lowered. He has narrated stories such as Pig Death by P.L. Worth, The Twisted Face Team by an anonymous author, and The Origin of Diseased Friends by Smid Britiscoth. I offer you Mr. Slugversh. Author's Note Warning. The upcoming narration may contain graphic violence. Reader discretion is advised. Narrator's Note Thank you, sir, but call me Slugversh. It is a pleasure. And now we will begin where he confesses to the bunch that he is unaware of the moon's size in relation to American states. I will begin the whole paragraph over. Oh, for crying out loud, announced he. That vile, oozing, and constricting pressure was all too much. For him, he felt to be the frog who is in the hand of the twisted, sick, nutty kid that squeezes that frog until its eyes pop out. That is Ken. Oh, yes. Although almost certain of this, there was a sliver of uncertainty. It was too much, too much. Not even he could deny it. It was probably too much. I'm I'm not sure. You hear me? I, I think it's Kansas, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Or am I? The four evil souls of eight glaring eyes moved in. The air thinned, provoking all of Ken Doth's breath to be as breathing razors while they cut and hacked down his windpipe. Almost to the point where blood may rush from his quivering lips at any time. Or vomit. Blood or vomit. Or anything putrid that would surface up from his diseased windpipe and flow out like liquid hell. The wickedness of the four encroaching assailants pressed onto him. Death was near. Though you could not smell a diseased, rotting, worm-infested cadaver that foretells death, you could nevertheless sense death. Death. Death was near. Wyatt grasped horrifically onto Ken's shoulder and squeezed. Immediately, Ken knew his escape was no more. And what would come is death. He would die. He could see glimmers of yellow light blasting out from Wyatt's eyes, and blood was oozing from his shoulder from Wyatt's clutch. David Michael Spolufioni moved in onto his other shoulder with a blazing, slashing, oozing grip that emulated Wyatt's own. David Michael Spolufioni began to plead. Ken? He moaned in horrible screech-like tones. Ken! Morning Woods, four skies to pee in a three-point stance when they first wake up. His tone had a demonic resonance that chilled the most vulnerable discs of Ken's spine. <laughs> Do you think I'm funny? Jack Quindlestub made his move, closing in like a killer for its prey. A lion latching its three-inch fangs deep into the lungs of that helpless zebra in the winds of the crying Serengeti plains. Jack indeed started in for the kill, thirsting for death. Death. I'm not going in for the kill. 
cried he, in a blood-curdling tone. I'm trying to comfort Ken because he's so paranoid, and nobody else is trying to kill him either. Wyatt and David Michael Spalufioni are containing him to calm him down. Jack's voice deepened and deepened the more he spoke. His hands paled and claws slowly grew to piercing points from his fingertips, as would a leopard. Getting ready to slash open its prey's belly and watch the oozing, rancid viscera spill out onto an innocent man's bologna sandwich. My hands are not changing. Look, see? Shrieked he, viciously displaying his clawed hands to the sky. I am the same old Jack. No claws. Same old human hands as usual. No horror, no death. All's normal. The eyes of death all turned to Jack, as if not only would Ken die, but Jack as well. For death and oozing decay seemed contagious, the air so putridly stunk of apocalyptic death, imminent death, and vomit. Shut up, Jack. I'm calming Ken down, but you keep talking to your stupid Quentin friend, said Wyatt, lusting for slaughter and no longer able to curb his passion for rage. The air stunk of disease. Blood was cascading down the walls, and screaming surrounded them from every direction, as if they were the roars from grim spectators in a gladiator arena hoping to expedite Ken's expiry. There's no screams or blood on the walls. People, this narrator Slugverse is insane. Please don't listen to this morbid interpretation of what's happening here because it's all ridiculous, I beg you, added he, seemingly possessed with raging evil, speaking only sin and death. His cry had the echoes of exploding eyeballs in a fiery pit of frozen carcasses. His eyes registered a diseased craze for anguish as if fixed to roll around on the floor of evil prone to do sinister things, like a dog who's discovered a beach full of rotting fish. Vile fish. How's your dating life, Slugversh? You get out much? Are you all right, Ken? It doesn't matter that you didn't know the moon is the size of Kansas, and we will get that pizza you forgot to order. We forgive you, said Toto Durkey struggling to entice Ken into his wrath with treachery. Snakes were spewing out from his mouth like water from a sink's faucet, and his face was painted with slime. <sighs> Author's note. Due to Slugversh's misperception of the actual events, I demand that Mr. Ken Doth suddenly disappears, and the characters Wyatt, Urkel, Toto Durkey, David Michael Spalufioni and Jack Quindlestub returned to their party, assembling by the TV as if nothing had passed. Due to Quentin Gormuck's refusal to take back over the main narratorial services, Slugversh will continue the narratorial services. Thank you, and sorry for the inconvenience. Narrator's Note Thank you, sir. Yes, the horrible had occurred, and as the demons they were, Jack, Wyatt, David Michael Spalufioni, and Toto had returned to their positions in the living room. All were insanely sitting on the couch 
save Toto, who was rousing his own destruction on the lazy boy. The TV was on, and there still was demise amidst the air. The walls were oozing with carnage and pulsating as if wailing for their eternal ends of agony and travail. The couch, so full of worms, seemed as if at any time it would start moving, breathing, growling, and one big, razor-toothed mouth would open up and devour its possession. Death devouring death. Their conversations were that of wicked things that only wicked people can understand, though barely audible over the screaming of the ailing, pulsating walls. Their voices were laden with stench and goo, and so was the air. It's a damn shame I'm not eating any pizza, begged Wyatt. His words seemed to be rapidly rotting as they were formed, like rabid squirrels. How about we turn on the TV and see what's going down, Toto? You're doing nothing. Grab the remote and get this party going. Toto stood up from the lazy boy like a skeleton from its grave and waded through a knee-high pile of oozing, rotting stuff until he came to the night table with the horrible, gnarled remote control. The suspense was nigh, as he looked in towards the universal remote to find the power button. He searched the left side, upper, right, then lower. He felt that ghastly sensation all the while on that search, that people were watching him, watching and waiting. For what? Death? That's not what's happening. There's no death, spoke he as vomit oozed from his ears. There's no vomit either. The tension mounted upon that couch of torture, all so wickedly waiting to see the television shriek and bellow. David Michael Spalufioni's face oozed down with more slime, turning a horrid goo-filled purple-green, like a pie full of purple-green pudding. Let's go, cried Wyatt, as if realizing he would have a knife surge into his back and twist into his lungs. The clock showed 7.59 and 57 seconds. 58. 59. Dum. Dum. The droning, horrific sound of disaster cried six more times from the grandfather clock. What would transpire? Would Wyatt kill Toto and cast him into a pit of diseased alligators, as the alligators pulled fragments of his fleshy morsels away like vultures of the Sahara? Would the mangled witnesses all be poisoned too because they knew too much? Death was stinking up in the air. But how much? The clock was a symbol to all in that room that something horrible was going to take place. But they did not know what. How could they know of their upcoming mortality? Madity had already packed into their minds, and all that was left were porous membranes of slime gnashing and gnawing on their skin. Gnashing and gnawing, gnashing and gnawing. And the shrieks of destruction screamed with destructiveness, 
and were far too rife for the mortal mind to fathom, for slimy bits of comprehension would invite the skin and blood to shrivel and rattle like a small capybara, trapped in the corner of a room by a thirty-foot anaconda who had not dined for an entire year. Author's Note Due to Slugversh's morbid interpretation of a non-horror segment and exploiting his narratorical privileges of saying the word oozing far too many times, he has been discharged from his narratorical duties. At the moment, there is no narrator to narrate the story, so there will be no narration until we get Quentin Gormuck back to narrate. He's currently on a contract holdout as advised by his narrator union. Again, I apologize for our unpreparedness. The scene is Jack, David Michael Spolufioni, Wyatt, and Toto sitting in the living room, and Toto's getting ready to turn on the TV. There's no death in the air, and there is no suspense. Again, there is no narration for now. Thank you, and I apologize for the inconvenience. There you go, Toto. Now we're cooking. Do you mind if I flip through and see what's all on? No, take her away. Yeah, take her away. Here's one for you guys. What's black, blue, and swollen all over? Your face if you don't laugh. <laughs> Toto, turn up the volume, will you? What? You don't think I'm funny? I'll rip you to shreds. Settle down. We're trying to find something good to watch here. Uh, sorry. What the heck's going on? How are people supposed to know who's talking? What are you talking about, Jack? There's no narrator, that's what I mean. Nobody will tell which of us is saying what. I'm Jack. I said that. Damn it, Jack. You're always muttering nonsense. Wyatt said that. Nobody's out there. Nobody's going to be watching our lives, so give it a rest. Wyatt said that too. Wyatt's stepping towards me. I don't know what he's going to do. Wyatt? What are you looking at? Who are you talking to? Are you a spy or something? Is your imaginary buddy Quentin a spy too? That's Wyatt saying that. He's got his hands partially cupped over my mouth. Hey, Quentin. Quentin, you pansy. Quit talking to Jack or I'm going to bash his face in. Comprende? Wyatt said that. He's now looking at me with his fist in my face. Ow! He's striking me. I'm kicking Jack's butt. Oh, look. I'm pounding Jack's head into the couch. He's not kidding. Come on, Wyatt, he's had enough. Toto told Wyatt he's had enough. Wyatt has me in a headlock. I'm in a lot of pain. You had enough? Wyatt asked me if I had enough. Yes, please stop. No more talking to your imaginary narrator, you got me. If you speak to your imaginary buddy one more time, I'm not going to stop. Wyatt's... Uh, he squeezed... I'm, I'm sorry, Wyatt. I won't do it anymore. That's better. Now sit down. Since you, Wyatt, told me to sit down, I'll do it. Here I go. I'm sitting down on the couch like the good Jack Quindlestub I am. I love watching TV. One more word, Quindlestub. Don't say another word. Jack made like he zipped his mouth. I'm David Michael Spalufioni. Don't encourage him. David Michael Spalufioni is sorry and funny. All right. You found anything good to watch, Toto? 
It's a uh, commercial now, but it had a hot gal on it before. Good enough. Man, pizza sounds so good. You sure this is not the show? This is one long damn commercial. Guess what? Everybody's always talking about how everything has meaning. Dreams have meaning. Poetry has meaning. All things happen for a reason, blah, blah, blah. My defense to that is if everything happens for a reason, then why are farts flammable? <laughs> Jack's laughing. I said shut up, Quindlestub. I told you not to talk. I wanted everybody to know I was laughing. I won't do it again. You thought I was funny. Answer me. Nodding is not good enough. I want to hear you say I'm funny. If he talks, I'll kick his butt. Don't encourage him, David Michael Spalufioni. He thinks you're funny. I think you're funny. That's all you need. What about Toto? Can he talk? Yeah, I can talk. That was a good one, David Michael Spalufioni. You're a funny, funny guy. Thanks, guys. This is the program, isn't it? This is stupid. I guess it is. Author's note. As pledged, we have a narrator again. We worked out a deal with the union to get this act completed. It came with a promise of lucrative health benefits. Once again, I offer you Quentin Gormach. Narrator's note. Thanks. I apologize, audience. I have bills to pay and medical expenses like everyone else, but things are all settled again. Now, to continue with this story that's going absolutely nowhere as expected. What a horrible, horrible theme for a story. Where should I start? How about I'll tell Jack Quindlestub that if he doesn't say that David Michael Spalufioni's humor is stale, then I'll eject him from the story. Here I go. Hey, Jack. He made like he was going to speak, but slammed his hand over his mouth. Wyatt looked over in pleasure and returned his focus to the television. Hey, Jack, what's up? I know you can hear me, so I'll tell you that if you don't tell David Michael Spalufioni that his humor is lame, then I'll throw you out of the story. He blurted out. That's not fair, roared he. You have no right to do so. Oh, yes, I do, Pansy. He looked at Wyatt with a pensive frown. I've got to go to the bathroom, guys. I'll be right back, added he. Toilet's broke, and someone pooped in it after, added Wyatt. Are you serious? asked Toto. I just had two cups of coffee. I always, always have to go exactly 1,800 seconds after drinking. That can't be screamed David Michael Spalufioni. I just fixed that damn thing. Jack nervously walked into the first floor bathroom and slammed the door shut. I won't even attempt to define how unmanly his manliness is. He had his nose plugged from the stench. Will you stop it? said he in a pinched nasal tone. Now what's going on? I just got off the phone with my girlfriend and when I mentioned I was narrating a part with you in it, she hung up. So now I'm going to take it out on you. You can't do that, declared he. You have no power as a narrator. Oh, but I do. That's part of what my negotiations were for. 
I've got the author's approval to toss you around at my will if provoked. What have I ever done to you? Oh, you know damn well what you've done. I can only say I'm sorry so many times. I don't got the money at the moment. I got a big job coming up. Come on, Quentin. If I... You know what David Michael Spilufioni will do? Not only will he kick my... But Wyatt will rob upon me, too, for speaking. Cut me a break, declared he. Okay. But I can't guarantee you how long I'll be able to contain myself. My time will certainly come, though, I'll assure you that. You've made things very tense between my girlfriend and me. Jack found his way back to the couch in the living room and joined the collaborative television viewing. Sit back down, Jack, demanded Wyatt. Jack nodded and plunked down on the couch. The television displayed a low-funded symphony, horribly playing O Glorious Oil Spill in G Minor. You can't talk, so I'll tell you the reason why we were watching this pitiful musical. The reason is that, for some odd reason, they're letting a composer with the shakes lead the show. They're slipping up O Glorious Oil Spill pretty bad. <laughs> pretty entertaining, said Wyatt. Suddenly, an abrupt break in the show came through the television set. Attention, Jack, announced a girl standing lonely in the middle of the screen of the age of around 30. Who's this stupid broad? whined Wyatt in a heaving tone. She better shake too or I'm gonna get pissed off. I know you're there, Jack, said the bold but lonely lady. Hey, Bimbo's saying your name, Jack. She's calling for you. Be quiet, said he sternly. I knew this girl. The voice on the television continued. Jack, you've always been lazy about responding to me when we were together, so here I am, all my notes, my calls, my letters. You never responded. Well, guess what? I haven't gotten over it, and I'm finally going to get your attention now, because I've got all your money. Toto flipped the channel. Enough of this, he said. What are you doing? That was for me, screamed he. But to his dismay, that channel also contained the same face. Toto flipped some more, but they were all the same. What's the deal? This ain't the precedent, is it? Asked David. Damn right she has all my money, taxing me to death. Was that funny? That's my old girlfriend, clarified he. I can't believe this. If you want to get your money back, then meet Archie at the bowling alley and he'll provide instructions for you there. You hear me, Jack Quindlestub? I took all your money, everything, all 500,000 of it. I own you, you hear me? And then, as she had finished speaking, a squad of police burst into the background and wrestled her down and cuffed her. They scooted her away. You're gonna see the inside for a long time for what you've done, Miss Nubby, claimed one cop, evidently a homicide agent. As quickly as the interruption had come on, it was off, leaving the gruesome finale of Oh Glorious Oil Spill. Holy cow, said Wyatt. She said your name, Jack. Jack's face was jumbled. Jack is also stupid. Knock it off, urged he. This is serious. She's got all my money. At least she says she does. You mean you know that broad? Asked Wyatt. Yeah, I told you. She's my old girlfriend. The high school thing, Suzanne Nubby was her name. A tough, 
snobby girl. He drew in a long pause to place the meaning and turn of events. He's not very astute. He never was. He's a loser. How'd she manage to steal 500,000 smackaroos? Asked David Michael Spalufioni. You sure she's not a something to you other than an old girlfriend? <laughs> Good one. He became serious again. No, really, Jack, that's a lot of money. I had it buried in my backyard. She must have snuck in back there and dug it up when I was sleeping, replied he. Five hundred big ones and you had it buried in your yard? No guard dog? No guard lion? screamed Wyatt. Whoa, wait. You've got five hundred thousand stored in your backyard and you were griping about having to chip in for pizza? What's up with that? asked David Michael Spalufioni, watching for someone to laugh. Well, said he, I kind of forgot where I'd buried it, and I just never got around to digging it up. I was also kind of hoping, paused he, well, it's just that I've heard that if you bury money, that a money tree will grow up like an oak tree would from an acorn. What an idiot. What kind of an idiot are you? screamed Wyatt. That's, that's money. It's the reason humans exist. Five hundred thousand and you bury the damn money? How crazy. I work like a damn dog for scraps and you have five hundred thousand big ones? And he wouldn't even chip in for the pizza, <laughs> continued David Michael Spalufioni. He smuggled a laugh in at the end. I had five hundred thousand big ones. I wonder what will happen to my money now that the cops got her, wondered he. Well, they'll give it to you, of course so you can put it in your backyard again, you stupid idiot. Wyatt picked up the phone. Now, you're going to call the police to bring us the money. You got me, stub? You're going to get the money and fulfill your destiny as a human being. And you're going to chip in a few bucks for the pizza, cheapskate. Again, added David Michael Spalufioni. Jack nervously punched in 911. Yeah, it's best the cops handle this anyway suggested he. Immediately, the dispatch recording responded. Thank you for calling 911. If you are calling to indicate a murder, press 1. If you witnessed a robbery, press 2. If your toilet is broken and you just pooped, press 3. If you have forgotten to return a book to the library and feel you're being followed by a librarian, press 4. If you... What's going on? said he. He turned to the bunch. They've got a recording on dispatch instead of a human taking the call. Lazy. Communists, cried Wyatt. It's that domino theory. One falls, they all fall. Damn them. Jack put the phone back to his ear. If your zipper is stuck because of Y2K vulnerabilities and your lover is lying in bed quickly getting turned off, press 1-2. If you are writing letters to a friend and he or she hasn't written back, no matter how much you try, press 1-3. This is getting ridiculous, said he. He sought to form a plan, brushing his right hand against his stinky chin. He's got a stupid-looking chin. Quentin, said he, almost glad to hear my voice. What should I do? Even if I could respect you enough to help you, I can't because I'm only a narrator. You would need to acquire the author's permission first. Hey, Mr. Author, can Quentin Gormuck help me get my money back? Author's note. 
No. There's your answer, Jack. You're on your own, stink face. Hey, Quintlestub, you get back the money for the pizza yet? Asked David Michael Spalufioni. No, responded he. I still got a recording. He put the phone back to his ear. If you are in the Bible study reviewing the book of Psalms and a bunch of scumballs dressed in togas broke into the chapel, armed with fly swatters claiming to be the Antichrist and are holding you hostage while stealing all the offering money, press 3-5. Stealing money, that's good enough for me, shouted he in anger and dialed 3-5 on the dial pad. Hello, this is Deborah. Her voice revealed an expression of surprise and spoke again as if reading from a script. How many members are in your con... Congregation... Congregation? Congregation? No, no. What's happened is my old girlfriend stole all my money from my backyard. The police apprehended her already, but I need to find out if they got the money yet and when they'll give it back to me said he. The lady paused for a long time, confused. You don't belong to a congregational? No, but... Well, we'll need to find out what number you need to press. I'm only supposed to deal with people claiming to be anti-Christ in a congrossment. Now, where was the money hid at? asked Deborah. In my backyard, but... How long has the money been gone? I suppose an hour or so, said he. Again, there was silence. Okay, I got a match. Stolen money, hid in backyard, about an hour ago. That should be 2-3-3-9. That department will take care of you. Can't you take care of me? begged he. I told you. I'm only trained to deal with people claiming to be the Antichrist in a compagration. Jack let out a sigh and hung up, distressed that the police force had succumbed to this. In all the years Jack had been alive, he's probably been really dumb. He pressed 2-3-3-9 and waited. Hello, this is Deputy Salty. You drank too much coffee before going out to fish and can't get your waiters off? You gotta be kidding me said the man. This number was supposed to be for people who've been robbed from their backyard about an hour ago, said he. Another unfriendly pause. Oh. Oh, yeah. I forgot that I was transferred yesterday to this outfit. I'm still in an old routine, I guess. Now, what's the problem and how can I help you? Uh, well, it's a long story, but I received an interruption on my television set by an old girlfriend of mine who stole money from my backyard about an hour ago, said he. Understood. Now, what do you need from the police outfit? How did you know that already? You pressed 2-3-3-9, didn't you? That's my outfit. You could say I'm an expert on this, but there's still much to learn. Besides, I'd seen it on my TV, too. You saw it on your TV, too? asked he. Yes, it was on national television, breaking up that composer with the shakes. I bet lots of people saw that break. Damn, I was hoping this would be a little more secret. Well, anyway, the cops apprehended her, and I was wondering if they've got the money already, and if they're going to give it to me, and when, replied he. 
If you'd paid attention to the dispatch for the 2-3-3-9, the recording specifically instructed for a person to only call this number if you are aware that the cops have not found the money, but were concerned about what type of grass seed to plant to replenish a dug-up yard in which I usually recommend Kentucky bluegrass myself. For your case, the police outfit has no knowledge about the robbery. Their reason for busting Miss Suzanne Nubby was for a homicide. If you'd paid attention and had some patience, the next number, 2-3-4-0, was the department for people concerned if their money was found by the cops. Although I shouldn't help you anymore because you simply lack patience. I'll do it anyways since I know an inside source for the 2-3-4-0 outfit. I can tell you that the police have not found the money and no intention of pursuing the money because they don't care. Jack hung up again and pressed for the 2-3-4-0 department. Immediately, a deep-toned man responded, a deeper tone of the exact same man he just got off the phone with. This is Deputy Salsa. What you need, Jack? You've already got all the information you need. How can you tell? asked he. Deputy Salty, the head of the 2-3-3-9 outfit, had your call on speakerphone and we share the same desk. That's how I can tell. This really ticked Jack off and he grew impatient, then looked back at David Michael Spalufioni. This guy said you aren't funny, added he. David Michael Spalufioni stormed up from the couch like he was sitting on a triggered spring, except he wasn't really sitting on a triggered spring. He got up really fast because he was mad. He swiped the phone from Jack's hand. Is this the pizza place? This swamp? You're calling back to tell me I'm not funny, aren't you, you punk? Maybe I'm not funny, but at least I'm trying. And with that, David Michael Spalufioni slammed the phone down on the nightstand. Uh, that's a cordless phone. Press the talk button to hang up, said Toto. And David Michael Spalufioni did just that. But not more than two seconds less than one-sixth of a minute afterward, the phone started ringing again. David Michael Spalufioni picked up the phone and pressed the talk button. Hello, this is David Michael Spalufioni, said David Michael Spalufioni. That wasn't very nice what you did. The voice was of the man from the 2-3-4-0 department. Let's see if you like this outfit. To his surprise, a loud slam came from the receiving part of the phone, as if somebody slammed the other end against a solid object. David Michael Spalufioni's ear rang in pain. Ah! he cried. Man, Pizza Guy was right. I guess that wasn't very nice to slam the phone on him. He put the phone on the nightstand. So, what's the news, Jackie boy? asked Wyatt. We got money coming or what? Jack stared back at the TV screen hoping for that interruption to return with more instructions for what to do. As yet, his only possibility was the next step, to go and find out what was so special about the bowling alley, which would be a pain in the butt he had no alternative, nothing else to operate on. He was puzzled and confused. Narrator's note. I use the two words puzzled and confused because neither seemed appropriate by themselves, though in this situation... They are synonyms and they make the sentence redundant. Despite that, the double adjective makes the sentence seem more solid and secure. Narrator's note. I use the words solid and secure again to emphasize the impact of strength, 
Though, if I were to choose one of the two adjectives, I'd definitely go with solid secure. I guess I'm not sure. Though, I'm sure if I said solid by itself, the sentence would still hold powerful meaning nonetheless. And I don't like Jack. I guess we go to the bowling alley, said he. Has anybody ever been there before? asked Toto. I have. We watched a fake boxing match there last March, suggested David Michael Spalufioni. I still have the flyer. The door knocked. Who is it? Should I already know, and if so, why don't I? Asked Ken, who was mysteriously back in the story again, all of a sudden. The door lurched open. Jack buried his face into his hands upon the sight of the most majestic, intelligent, and beautiful woman. It was my amazing girlfriend, Stacy. Stacy, what are you doing here? Wouldn't you like to know, baby boy? She beautifully replied. Her hair flowed like the delicate snuggles of an angel. Who's this broad and who's she just talking to? Asked Wyatt. My name is Stacy, and I'm here to collect that money you owe me, Jack, she barked. Excuse me, barked? Am I a dog now? Should I sit and stay? Or should I collect the money from Jack that you're not man enough to do yourself when I asked? She beautifully asked. She was most certainly not barking. Jack glanced over to Wyatt. This is Quentin's girlfriend. Ex-girlfriend, she declared, forgetting that this was clearly some time to focus on ourselves in order to give the relationship a break. Ex-girlfriend to him, ex-girlfriend to you, too. I'm tired of your excuses. I need my money you owe me. Who the hell is Quentin? Wyatt asked. He's the narrator I keep telling you about, Jack exclaimed. The one you pounded me over because I wouldn't stop talking to him. Toto stepped in. So, your ex-girlfriend stole your money and posted it on TV? And your ex-girlfriend that you owe money to is currently dating an imaginary narrator in the sky? Was dating, she mistakenly clarified. And I thought I had girl troubles. David chuckled and looked around at people's expressions, unaware of how the relationship status between her and I was complicated, but far from over. Why don't you give her the money already, Jack? She pointed her elegant hand over to me uprightly. Stay out of this, Quentin. If you were a real man, I wouldn't need to be doing this right now. You already had your chance to deal with him. Is this what it's all about? You broke up with me over money? I feel so used. We had something real. You let Jack walk all over you, Quentin. He borrowed my car and left garbage in the console. He spreads lies about me. He borrows money knowing full well that he'll never pay it back. He tried dating my sister. And now we're in this mess, partly because of you. I don't need either of you. She exclaimed like a selfish snob. She growingly became disgusting and sour to look at while she remained there. Author's note. Due to the tensions between the narrator and a newly introduced character, who were at one point romantically entangled, I've decided to implement Mr. Slugverse quickly for narration duties until further notice. Author's note. Warning. 
The upcoming narration may contain graphic violence. Reader discretion is advised. There was a hideous standstill at the door as Stacy prevented Jack from leaving. Her eyes had sun-baked maggots discharging from her vacant stare. Pus and vomit permeated the room before soon they were bathing in a sea of death and medieval hate. Stacy, you need to let me by. I'm going to get my money that was stolen and I promise I'll get you just as soon as I get it back. Jack said in the vilest tone. Jack surely had bloodlust and Stacy's entrails were on the menu. Yeah, all $500,000 of it declared Toto. And he didn't even chip in for the pizza, added David, as blood rushed out of his navel. Five hundred thousand dollars, she wailed. What's your descriptions, Mr. Slugversk? Narrator's note. It's Slugversh. It was buried in my backyard and I forgot where it was. There's no time to explain. We need to go. Jack grabbed his coat made of live lambskin. His eyes turned into a pale, callous white as his tormented soul begged. They departed the building and were gone. Section 3 Author's Note I reinstated Quentin Gormuck as narrator now that his ex-girlfriend is no longer in the scene. There were absolutely no maggots coming from eyes or bloodlust. Narrator's Note Thank you. The sign over the old building, squeezed between many other buildings, read, The Bowling Alley. Jack, like the stubnut he was, tiptoed out of the minivan and looked nervously into the building while Wyatt, David Michael Spolufioni, Toto, and David Michael Spolufioni's mom hugged closely to the windows. They, too, peering intently upon the building, you sure you don't want another one of us in case something funky goes down? Asked Toto. It seems like things always, always go bad when you least expect it. The tense question set Jack off as he sighed with a solemn expression. <sighs> no, this is a public place. Whoever they are ain't going to do what they got to do in front of bystanders. Besides, I'm sure they want me to show up alone. His pace from the street showed fear, but advanced without hesitation. The door hinge cried for lubrication as he opened it and with lessening speed, he stepped in. Inside, amidst a warehouse-sized store floor, were endless bowling lanes and a stage that looked to have once been a boxing platform. Tucked away at the back right section were a few, but not many, bowling balls of lavish elegance. League players were sprinkled about the floor. He looked up nervously, hoping to conceal the fact that someone was talking and seeking to throw Jack off from his purpose. He had already resolved to keep unknown amongst the patrons until he knew why he was directed to come here. Author's Note Please cease with formulating sentences involving Jack that subsequently utilize the word off such passive-aggressive tactics are detrimental to the integrity of the story. Just then, a mangle-eyed mechanic popped his head up and looked towards Jack as if he might be one of the henchmen. In the amount of time it takes for a field goal-kicked football to cross through the uprights of a goalpost, Jack lunged for one of the balls as if to test its weight and accuracy.
It was not quick enough. The mangle-eyed man finished repairing one of the ball return belts and shuffled closer. I've got some important information, so listen up, Quindlestub, said the man. I'm supposed to tell you that you're supposed to find Ken Doth again, and he has the details of what to do next. But wait a minute. Ken's in on this too? asked he. No, but he can instruct what to do next, and that's all that I'm supposed to tell you. That's all I got. But he keeps randomly disappearing from the story. Jack's face was pale, like the plot of this ridiculous story. Jack was cheap, like the author of this story. Wait, what did you say, Quentin? Asked he. Narrator's note. I am done with this garbage. You can't pay me enough. Send my check in the mail. Where are you going? Who are you looking at? Never mind that. Well, this conversation is over. Wait. Who do you work for? Who's behind all of this? Where's my money, damn it? Where's Suzanne Nubby? I know no more than what I told you, and if I did then, I can't tell you any more than you already know now. Where's Ken Doth? How do I find him? He keeps disappearing. I don't know. Wait a moment. Why did I come here if I only need to find Ken? Is he here? What's going on, mister? You're leaving out something. All I can tell you is that he's not here. Wait a minute. You said before you couldn't tell me any more, but then you told me he's not here. What's going on? Oops. I just remembered that I could tell you that Ken's not here. It slipped my mind, I guess. There's something else I'm allowed to tell you, too, but I can't remember. Damn, it was an easy one, too. Who's behind this? Tell me. No, that's not what it was. It was something really simple. Where's my money? No, that's not it either. I can tell you... Darn, I can't remember. What's that in your hand, and why do you keep looking at it? I can't tell you that. Aha! Give it back. What the... Things to tell. Number one. You possess important information. Number two. Jack should find Ken Doth to know what next to do. Number three. Ken is not at the bowling alley. Number four. You can't tell him anything more than that. Things to surely not tell. Number one. The... Uh, Executive Editor's Note, Gregor Morksley. Wrap this up. We're shutting down the story. There's no flow, no style, and it's very hard for a reader to follow. Author's Note. Noted. Apparently, Quentin Gormuck had raced off the set with no indication, leaving no narration at the end of that last segment. The Things to Tell was a note that had been given to the henchman by Suzanne. Due to further budget constraints, executive editor directives, and unsettled contract disputes with the narrator's union, we're pulling the plug on this story. I thank you for reading and apologize for the inconvenience this story has caused. The Unfinished End Luckily, this story was low budget and could not get through the editor, so the tale ended abruptly. That is an admirable excuse for all the stories I have not and will not finish, Budget cuts. Also, 
Nearly every story will end in disarray when the lead narrator starts to have love quarrels with characters and ultimately walks off the set. This certainly will never be finished and was highly representative of what cabin fever is. Rambling about nothing, using contrasting narration styles that mirrored a writer's inner dialogue, and assuming the theme makes sense outside the walls of my own brain. Not even narrators with the laurels of slugverse could vocalize such a gruesome and graphic synopsis that this tale begs for.